As I read uh, the first 12 verses of chapter 2 of John, where we'll be spending our time this morning. This is the word of the Lord. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us that we can gather together and look into your word. And may we each today consider these thoughts from this Gospel of John and the story of this wedding and the intervention that Jesus had at this wedding. May we be enlightened from your word today, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, everybody likes a good wedding. We enjoy going to weddings. We think about weddings and we conceive of them as being a joyous time. We want to go to a wedding and enjoy it. And I think in my own lifetime, they're the uh, most magnificent wedding that I've ever seen, not in person, but was the wedding of Charles and Diane some 30 years ago or more. And in that wedding, you know, there was no expense spared. Whatever it took to put on the grandest, most beautiful wedding in the world happened that day. And a lot of planning went into that wedding to make sure that everything went off just fine. The only problem with that wedding, of course, was that uh, the two who got married probably weren't properly paired with each other. In fact, some years later, Charles was asked if he loved Diane, and his answer was, well, yes, whatever love is. And that, I think, conveyed something of the problem that that particular marriage had. And we know how that one turned out. And some weddings turn out poorly during the wedding. In my own wedding, when Deanne and I got married some years ago, uh, we uh, had a a wedding, and this is where we did it back in those days. We didn't have the big productions that a lot of people put on today. We had a church wedding, and in the church wedding, we invited the whole church, and so we probably had 350 people at our wedding. But we only had to serve them cake and punch downstairs in the gymnasium afterwards. And so we came up with this punch recipe. Now, you all know the punch I'm talking about, right, where you mix some fruit juices with some sherbet ice cream, and that was a punch, we called it. And the recipe for the punch that we had had just a cup of grapefruit juice 
mixed with a lot of orange juice and Sprite and other things, along with some ice cream, whatever that was. But the people who mixed the punch didn't pour in a cup of it. They pulled in the whole gallon of the grapefruit juice. And, of course, that overtook the whole taste of it. And so we had plenty of grapefruit juice saved up after the wedding. Nobody drank any of it except one old guy. He loved it. <laughs> but uh, in this wedding, Jesus comes to, you see, there's a shortage of wine. Now, I've uh, officiated at a number of weddings. I think about 25 to 30. I've got a book where I keep track of the marriages I performed at. And when you do that many weddings, you see a number of different problems arise. Uh, one wedding I did in California, I allowed the, uh, the husband and wife, the groom and bridegroom, to, uh, uh, bride to write their own vows. But I always want to meet with them and talk about them. And so this one guy writes his own vows, and he brings it to me, and he gives it to me. And it's 10 pages, single-spaced. And he intended to read this. Now, I figure this is your wedding. We'll do as you want. We'll just do this. But when I read it, his, and I'm going to summarize it for you, but it was basically this. He said... To my beloved wife, I promise you I will never treat you like my father treated my mother. And it went on from there describing every evil thing his dad had done to his mother, and I won't do that to you. And so it was eight pages of gripes against his father. And I said, well, we can't do this, so let's fix this up and cross this out. Let's make this more about the two of you. And so we got that, but it was still very long, a very long and so now we're in the wedding ceremony, and we've got the, the groomsmen on one side and the bridesmaids on the other. And the way I do the wedding, I stand on the floor looking up so the bride and the groom can look at the crowd because I'm not the center of attention, they are. And so I'm on the floor. Now, when it comes time to do these vows, I sit down. And the, the best man stands up to read this. And I think people thought, why is Rick sitting down? It's kind of unusual just to take a break in the middle of a wedding. But I knew it was coming. And so this guy started, <laughs> he started reading these vows, and it went on and on. And are you 30 minutes is about what it took to read these vows when we got done. 30 minutes. And I'm not exaggerating this at all. But as time goes on, 10, 15 minutes into it, you've got the bridesmaids. And they're not all adults. They're teenagers and all. And they are leaning against the piano and just trying to, they're uncomfortable shoes and clothes. And one of them, they're just leaning. It's just horrible, horrible. And while I'm watching this, I'm thinking, I should have just had them sit down too. This is horrible. When one of the groomsmen falls over backwards, passes out, and lands right in front of me. And so we pick them up, revive them, sit everybody down, and finish these vows. And so we got through that wedding and, and got that one done. As far as I know, they're still married. That worked. But, but disasters happen at weddings. Another wedding that I attended for a friend of mine, his uh, daughter got married down at the cathedral in Denver, uh, Catholic Cathedral. And everything was set to go except the, the bachelors, the men had a, a bachelor party the evening before. The groom and the best man, his brother, got into a fist fight. And the groomsman, the best man, didn't show up for the wedding, wouldn't come. And as far as I know, after 10 years, they still not talk to each other. And so weddings can go bad and things can happen bad at a wedding. Another wedding we went to in the mountains... And it was supposed to be a beautiful setting. We were in Durango, and so we hopped on some buses after we got there, and it took us up to this nice peak in the mountains, up above this ridge, looking over the mountains. But it had rained, and so all the women are in their beautiful gowns and dresses, but we have to walk through about four inches of mud through the mountains to get to this point. And everybody's got mud ankle deep. After the wedding, of course, we're supposed to go to the reception and have all of that. But that kind of was a, a wrinkle in the wedding that, that was uh, ugly in that regard. 
So weddings all have these circumstances. Now, Jesus comes to this wedding, and we'll talk about how this goes, but this is a strange story for John to give us as the first miracle, the first sign of Jesus, because Jesus shows up at a wedding and he turns water into wine. And so at first blush, the story we see here is of Jesus showing up, this celebration going on for about seven days is what it takes. And so somewhere during these seven days of the celebration, the wine runs out and, and now Jesus fixes the problem. And so why does John choose this where Jesus turns water into alcohol so that those who are already drunk can continue on with their party? It seems like a rather strange way for John to introduce to us who Jesus is. But that's what he does. And as he does this, of course, back in the, these days, the Greeks had this god Dionysus. And the Dionysian myth had the story of Dionysus who once every year would turn water into wine. And it would flow freely so that the Greeks could celebrate, become inebriated, and really enjoy themselves. And people love the Dionysian story, the myth of all of that. Because wine is a picture of joy. It's a picture of celebration. And that's part of what is involved in this story. And so we see John describing this wedding where Jesus shows up. Now, as we begin in chapter 2 here, this is the first sign that Jesus performs. We'll see six others before we get to chapter 12. After that, we're going to see Jesus in his glorification and those events heading to the cross. Before John gets there, he picks these signs, seven signs. And in reading this sign, it helps as we read further into John to see what's going on. And then we can kind of come back to John chapter 2 and understand more of it. It's perhaps like if you've watched a good movie, you watch a movie intently. It's only after you get to the end that you realize you missed something at the beginning that was too subtle and you didn't understand it. And so when you go back and watch the film the second time, you start seeing things you didn't understand. Have you had that experience? So you kind of know, oh, I, I see what's going on now. There's this foreshadowing, this picturing of something else coming in the future. And so John chapter 2 is going to be something like that. There's a lot of foreshadowing. What John is doing here is kind of planting seeds. He's going to use certain key words, certain key ideas, and just drop them out there and then develop them further and further as we move into the Gospel of John over the next several months. You'll see more of that. But I want you to see some of it today so we understand what's happening here. So when we come to John chapter 2, we see this great drama being played out. And you might not initially think, but what John is doing here is describing a drama of Jesus showing up at a wedding and turning this water into wine. And so we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we begin here with this wedding that's happening on the third day. Now, perhaps the first time you read through a gospel like John, the third day doesn't really ring any bells. But if you've read through gospels before and you know the end of the story, you know what happens at the end, you understand that the phrase, the third day, signals something important happening. The third day, of course, was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And I think what John is even doing here at this point is placing this phrase in there, on the third day. A picture of what's coming in the future. A clue to what John is talking about in this sign. And that is that Jesus will rise from the dead on the third day. There's a foreshadowing of the resurrection. But the problem is, or what Jesus has to now do, is explain 
How do we get to that point? How do we get to the point of the resurrection? Now, let's take a look at some of these uh, the, the elements here. We have this wedding that's at Cana in Galilee. Cana is a town about nine miles north of, of uh, Nazareth where Jesus was raised. So it's some distance away, but not very far. A half day's walk, you can make it there in three or four hours. Uh, and so uh, uh, Mary's there at this wedding. Now, weddings in this era, the first century, were very important. The wedding would be put on, and the bridegroom, the husband's family, would pay for it, unlike what we do today, where it's reversed, where the brides typically pay for it. And so it was the responsibility of the bridegroom to put on a party. And when they put on a wedding, the whole village might be invited to it. It was open to pretty much everybody. And it was a nice thing to go to. People would enjoy going to weddings. The Jews loved to celebrate. And they made even a wedding a time of celebration. And in part the reason they made these weddings so significant in terms of the celebration was to make sure that everybody knew that these two are now married. That was a public declaration that they're married and so now their cohabitation would be seen as, a, as legitimate. There wouldn't be a problem with that. But nobody ever doubted that, that these two were married. And the celebration would begin with the bride, a groom, the husband, uh, to be uh, gathering up his fellows and they'd gather up in the evening and they'd grab torches perhaps so that at night they could march through the village to go get the bride and then take her to the place where the wedding would be, to his home, and the wedding would happen there. And you see in Matthew chapter 22 a picture of that, or 25, a picture of that with the ten virgins and you see the story of the groomsmen coming to get the bride. And so he would get the bride and take her back. They would have a ceremony. But that was just the beginning. They would then march through the night to where they were, the couple would now live, to their new home. And everybody would see that. And you might not just take the direct route. You might walk up and down the streets of the village, back and forth. So everybody who was there could see this wedding taking place. When you got to the new home, you would then celebrate. And the celebration could last up to seven days, depending on your ability to pay for things and take care of a good wedding party, it would go on for days and people might come and drink with you throughout the day and enjoy the celebration. So that's something of the wedding that we have here. And so we see on this third day, there's a wedding in Cana and the mother of Jesus was there, John says. Well, now we're about nine miles from where Jesus lived or thereabouts. Perhaps Mary's there because this is the wedding of a relative. And if so, then Jesus also might be a relative to this person. Uh, or that may just be a friend of some kind, but for that reason, Mary's there. Now, she's there first, and then Jesus shows up. And it may be that Jesus was a relative and invited to be there, but it was also quite common for those getting married to invite public teachers or those well-recognized as having a significant position. So perhaps Jesus came in that regard, invited in that regard, and he might also bring his disciples. And so Jesus and his disciples, who now number five, not 12 yet, but 5 from chapter 1 we see. We have Andrew and uh, Peter and then Philip. Uh, and, uh, and who's the fourth one? Who? Nathaniel. Nathaniel also lived in Cana. So perhaps we're in Cana because this is a friend of Nathaniel. And then John may be there, this unnamed disciple. So Cana may be the place because John lived there, maybe because it's the family of Mary and, and Jesus. But we're here now at this wedding. And we all gather up for this wedding. The wedding couple would probably be teenagers as well. They were married rather young. And so we see this problem. Now Jesus shows up 
And some commentators suggest that perhaps the reason the wine ran out is because Jesus and his five disciples showed up and consumed more than their fair share of it. But without getting into that, we see the problem in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, the wine we're talking about was a fermented wine. It had an alcoholic content to it. And I know for a lot of years there was uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, preaching, Billy Sunday and many others, alcohol's evil and it can be alcohol's evil so Jesus couldn't drink it. This had to be just pure grape juice and not fermented wine. It probably was certainly fermented wine, but what the Jews also did was dilute it. If wine has an alcoholic content of 12 to 14 percent or more, they would cut it by a third maybe with water and reduce it down to about 3 or 4 percent, something like a modern uh, beer or lager of some kind. And so they would reduce the alcoholic content to it. And so people might drink it, but it did have an intoxicating effect. And there was a warning not to become intoxicated and lose control of yourself. But many did. It was a time of celebration, and that's what they did. So they run out of wine. Now, you might at first blush not think that that's such an important deal, but in the first century it really was. Because as the groom, it's your job to make sure that everybody has enough to drink, that the party goes on. And if you run out of wine, you would face the shame and ridicule of your friends and neighbors, even potentially a lawsuit from the bride's family. Because you have an obligation to put on a party for them as well, and your failure might also subject you to a lawsuit where you now have to pay them damages. So it was a big deal to run out of wine. So the wine runs out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now think about that. Why would Mary say that to Jesus? She's told, she sees that they're out of wine. She goes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, the sentence in Greek is a simple declarative sentence. It's stating a fact. Something is true. But some see in this an implied request that Jesus do something about it. Can you help us with this problem? And it might be something akin to if you're standing in a line and somebody's standing on your foot, you might say to them, you're standing on my foot. Well, you're not just providing them information, are you? You're actually making an implicit request that they now remove themselves from on top of your foot. So perhaps Mary had a duty to make sure that there was sufficient wine, and now there's a lack of it. Maybe she's actually asking Jesus to step in and do something. And so we see this. Now, why would she ask Jesus to help? Think about who Mary is now. Mary was the one to whom the angel came to her and whispered to her and said, you're going to give birth to a son and he will be the Messiah. He will be God himself. And it says Mary treasured those things in her heart. So she knew all along who Jesus was. When he was 12 years old, they departed from Jerusalem, but he stayed back. It got uh, left behind in the temple. And when Mary and Joseph figured out that the caravan had traveled and left Jesus behind, they go back to Jerusalem and find Jesus doing what? Teaching in the temple. And so he's there teaching. So she knew there's something very precocious about this kid. There's something great about him. He's going to do something great. But now, by the time we get to John 2, Jesus has lived probably 30 years or more. I mean, he doesn't get crucified probably till he's 33, maybe even 36. So he's already 30 years old, 33 perhaps. And we see Jesus now as an adult man. Now, Joseph is not mentioned, probably because he's now passed away and died. He's not mentioned again in the Gospels after the birth. 
So if Joseph is gone, then Jesus, as the oldest son, may have assumed responsibility to take care of Mary and the family. And if that's the case, perhaps Mary is now asking Jesus to use his resourcefulness and now step up and help at this wedding. Perhaps that's what's going on. But Jesus now looks at Mary and gives an answer. And he says, why are you making this my problem? Think about what Jesus, what Mary knew about Jesus. This is the first miracle that Jesus does. Now, there's another, uh, New Te- there's another document from the New Testament era called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. There's a Gospel of Thomas and then the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. And in the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, there's stories in there about the juvenile Jesus. There's a story about him molding clay pigeons out of the clay and then throwing them up in the air and turning them into pigeons and they fly away. His first miracle, they say. There's another story about Jesus as he's playing with his uh, schoolmates on the uh, grounds. Uh, One bumps into his shoulder, making Jesus mad, and so he strikes him dead. Another whose teacher gets out of line, so Jesus strikes her dead. And then there's a story where the townspeople come to Mary and Joseph and say, boy, your Jesus is really a problem. Can you just kind of calm him down and keep him from doing all these things? He's really killing too many of us. Those are stories that circulated in the second century, way later. They're all what's called apocryphal. They're not true stories. John says this is Jesus' first miracle, his first sign. And so we see now in verse 4, Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now think about this. Mary comes to Jesus. And if we read between the lines, we can kind of imagine how this very short conversation went. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. She knows it's a real problem. Jesus hears that, and he knows it's a real social faux pas. It's a real problem for this couple. And Jesus' answer is to start with the words, woman. Gune, as in gynecologist, woman. Now, it's a strange way to talk to your mother, because there's the word mater, mother. He could have said, he doesn't say that, he says woman. And I know some commentators talk about this and say, well, really, in the first century, it's a polite way to refer to your mother as well. Although they can't cite any real examples of that at all. Uh, So in this, it sounds like it's a rather distancing sort of way, separating himself from his mother here. And perhaps the answer to that is Mary is making an implicit request that Jesus step in and help and do something. And Jesus says to her, woman... In other words, at this moment, I want you to see me not as your son, but as your Messiah. He's now separating himself from Mary. I'm not your son who fixes problems for you. I'm your Messiah. And that's why he goes on to say, what does this have to do with you and me? How is this my concern and our concern? This is their wedding. It's not my problem. It's theirs. And then he says, because my hour has not yet come. In other words, he says... I can't worry about this wedding and the shortage of wine because I'm not ready to die. Now, when you read this in its short story here, it seems like a rather strange answer that Jesus gives. And I think it takes some deliberation and some thought to figure out why Jesus answered that way. So we see the word woman. He separates himself from her. And when you see it in uh, other places, it may have something of a, a Downton Abbey idea to it. You know where they say milady? Uh, something like that. So it's maybe a semi-polite way, but it's also distancing. It's saying that, you know, I'm not responsible to you anymore. But then he says, uh, what does this have to do with me? 
Now, this phrase in Greek is, is rather short. It's what to me and to you is the, the literal Greek. If you want a Bible that speaks only literal Greek, then that's what it would say. What to me and to you. It's a Semitic phrase. It's sort of a, a phrase that people then understood to be saying, why is this my problem? Why are you making this our problem? It's not our problem. And so he says this, and it's used five times in the Gospels, always of demons. When the demons say that, why are you making this uh, involving yourself with us? And so think about this. Then Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now the hour he's talking about here is the hour of his death. We can see that uh, quite plainly. If I turn over a few pages to John chapter 7 and verse 30, we see these words. And we're going to follow this idea of the hour for a few moments. In John 7, 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So you see the story there. There's a question about who Christ is, and they could not arrest him because his hour had not yet come. We turn the page over to John chapter 8 and verse 20. These words he spoke to them in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And then you come over to chapter 12. In chapter 12 and verse 20, we see this story in John beginning to develop a little further. In chapter 12 and verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say this to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So when Jesus says his hour has come, it's the hour of his death. It's an hour of the time when he'll be glorified. And then chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then chapter 17, the first words of this high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. See, now it's come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accompanied the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The hour is the hour of his death, crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That's the hour that he's speaking of. And so when Jesus answers Mary by saying... My hour has not yet come. He's saying, my hour to die has not yet come. Jesus is doing what a lot of unmarried couples do at a wedding. When they're at a wedding, what are they thinking about? 
They're thinking about their own wedding. And Jesus, at this moment, when asked to fix the problem at this wedding with a shortage of wine, he's looking past this small circumstance of this problem at this wedding, looking forward to his wedding, which is his glorification. We'll talk about this shortly, but that's his moment of death. And he says, my time has not yet come. Mary's asking Jesus to reveal himself, to show himself who he is. And as she asks this, she's asking him to reveal himself. Now, what Jesus does, and John shows us, is he reveals himself incrementally. He reveals himself first by explaining to his disciples that he's the coming Messiah. He's the Messiah. What they don't understand, even for several years, is that he has to die. Now, if Jesus came to these disciples early on and said, I'm the Messiah who's going to die, they would have known that's not how it goes. They would know that the Messiah who saves them is not going to die at the hands of the Romans, but he's going to lead them to defeat the Romans. In their mind, the Messiah was a temporal ruler to overcome the temporal captivity they had into the Romans. Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, but it takes time for them to understand that he has to die to become that. And his resurrection then is that moment that sets forth that new kingdom that we're going to talk about. And so Mary sees this. Now, why would Mary want Jesus to reveal himself? Again, you think about this. For some 33 years, perhaps, people may have been talking about Mary, knowing that this was an unmarried girl who gave birth to a son. And so maybe for many, many years, people said, well, you're Jesus. He's quite a kid. He's a great guy. But he was always known to be born out of wedlock. Mary is, I think, wanting here people to know that, no, this kid really is special. There was a movie some years ago called Failure to Launch. It's a story about a, a, a son who doesn't grow up, who lives with mom and dad well past his prime, uh, where he should be moving out. There's something in the idea of perhaps Mary's mind here even. Mary wants Jesus to launch his new kingdom. Let's get it going. Let's show everybody that I really was a virgin who conceived and gave birth to the Messiah, to the coming Lord. And so Mary wants Jesus to show himself, but Jesus says, I'm not ready to do that. So he talks about his hour. And then verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, that again is another strange response. So let's try and figure out what's going on here. Mary says they have no wine. Jesus says, woman, why are you making that our problem? I'm not ready to die. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he says. Perhaps we can kind of visualize this circumstance like this. If you just play along for a moment. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Just telling him. Maybe hoping that he'll do something to fix the problem. Jesus looks at her and says, woman, why is this my problem? Why are you telling me this? And then perhaps with sort of a look on his eye with some nonverbal communication, he says... My hour's not yet come. I'm not ready to die. But with a wink, he tells her, I'll fix this problem for you here. But just so you know, my coming ministry is what's on my mind. My coming death and crucifixion, that's what's on Jesus' mind at this wedding. And so perhaps with some nonverbal idea, communication from Jesus, Mary gets that idea that, yeah, Jesus is going to fix this. And so what does she say to the servants? Do whatever he says. Now, she doesn't know what he's going to do. She doesn't know if he's going to bring in new wine. Fix it. How is he going to fix this problem? She doesn't know. She just trusts that he will. And so Mary here is an illustration of faith. 
She just trusts and doesn't know what Jesus will do, but just exercises that faith. Now, her words to the servants are good for us as well. Do whatever he tells you to do. And that should be a lesson for us. Whatever Jesus says to do, that's what we should do. Just do whatever he says. It'll work out. That's what our calling is to be in this life. Do whatever Jesus says and he will work out his plan. What Jesus is doing is explaining to Mary that I'm not going to reveal myself according to your time plan or anybody else's. God's the one who has this all planned out. When God the Father has the right time, then all these events unfold. And that's why throughout the next several years he would say, but my hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. And when it does come, that's when God will appoint and that's when the crucifixion happens. And so Mary says, do what he says. Now, as sort of an aside here, the Roman Catholics have this uh, doctrine, this idea that Mary serves as a mediatrix, a female mediator between God. So we have Jesus as a mediator. We also have Mary. And, and some would say that Mary is illustrated here as being able to get things done with Jesus. And that's why they might pray to Mary because she has this inside track into the ear of Jesus. And when she asks him to do something, he feels more obligated to do it because his mother asked. Now, we don't need to go into all the reasons that that doesn't make sense. But one of the great commentaries on the Gospel of John is written by a man named Raymond Brown, who's a Catholic theologian uh, and very insightful. But even he says, this is not what this is about at all. You don't get mediatrix out of this passage. So we see this. Now, do whatever he says. Verse 6, we see Jesus now going to work. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. We see the story now. There are six stone water jars. If you remember going to the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit, you may have seen some water jars there that were made out of clay and others that were made out of limestone, a stone that was spun on a lathe and made that way. And the Jews viewed those as two different ways of making a, a pot, a container. But the one made out of clay could be contaminated. And when it was, it had to be destroyed. Where one made out of limestone could not be contaminated, could be re-cleansed and be kept. And so this is a picture of six stone jars. Now the reason they're there, there's, in the Greek it says two or three measures a measure being about 8 to 10 gallons, and so there's probably 20 to 30 gallons in each of these jars, and so that's why we translate it that way. And so there's 150 gallons of water, a lot of water in this house, 150 gallons of water. Uh, and so uh, that's wh why is that there? This is part of the Jewish purification. Now, that has nothing to do with hygiene. The Jews didn't understand germ theory very well. They didn't understand hygiene their washings and all of this had to do with ritual purification and not hygiene. They washed their hands to make sure they were ritually pure, not because they were afraid of germs. And so these were there for that ritual purification purpose. And so these jars would be there so they could dip out the water and wash the hands of the guests and purify themselves. Over in the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, there's a story there that Jesus uh, uh, of Jesus with the Pharisees, let me just read a few verses of Mark 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat uh, unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they uh, wash. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And so we see all this being described for us. And that's what these pots were there for. It was so that the people could have ritual purification. Now Jesus says, fill those pots of ritual purification to the top. Why does he do that? First, these, this is the water that he's going to turn to wine. We'll see this in the next verse. But at that moment, somewhere along the, this moment, uh, they fill these pots to the brim, it says. Clear to the top with water. They're filled clear with water. That turns to wine. Perhaps the reason Jesus said fill them to the brim is because he wants those servants who are observing this and his disciples to know that he didn't do anything, didn't add anything. He didn't take some wine and pour it into these waters and fix it for them. That this was actually a miracle in which he turned that water into wine. Now think about what Jesus has now done. He's turned the water there for the purpose of Jewish ritual purification into wine. This water is now changed. It's now gone. And the idea that John is conveying here, this is the sign you see, that the Jewish system of ritual purification, the Jewish idea that was set up in the Old Testament, that this purification would be in place, that is going to be supplanted with the new wine of Jesus. Jesus is that wine. That wine now is a symbol, it's emblematic of this new covenant. And so that's why in Luke chapter 22 we have the Lord's Supper being instituted. Now notice what happens there. This water at this wedding turns to wine. What does Jesus speak about the wine during the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal? And when, in, John, in Luke chapter 22, 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He now takes this fruit of the vine in the Lord's Supper and uses that as a symbol of his own blood. And so at this marriage, he converts water into wine, into this symbol of celebration at the coming marriage of the Lamb we'll talk about. But at the Lord's Supper, he takes that same wine and converts that or shows us the imagery of that being his own blood. And so this again points to the crucifixion as being the main point of this. This is the story. And so why all of this? Jesus is explaining that sin is our real problem. That we need to have sin atoned for. And as Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't accomplish that. It accomplishes nothing. It's simply a sign pointing towards the Messiah himself. Pointing to what Jesus will do. And so Jesus has this as a sign. Sin is our problem. He then is a solution. The solution found in this new covenant. The blood of the new covenant symbolized by this wine which replaces the purification water of the old covenant. See, sin is always our problem. Now, when we think of sin, we often think of it as being the evil we see in the world from a lot of bad people. We don't want to think about it being our own, uh, but it really is, and we have to conceive of that way. 
and a powerful story that's told of really understanding the pervasive of evil in all of us is the story of the, uh, the German war camp uh, man, uh, Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was uh, a, a guard at, a, at, the, at Auschwitz. He was a guard at the prison camps. And after the war ended, he was able to escape and find his way to Argentina before he was captured and brought to trial uh, some years later. And when he was brought to trial, he was set up before everybody and, and perceived to be just the, the most evil of all of humanity, this, this great icon of extraordinary evil. And then one, uh, a number of prisoners who could identify Eichmann were brought in, and one named Denor, Elihud Denor, was brought in. And when he saw Eichmann, he broke down and cried. And when asked about it by Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes, asked about, why did you break down and cry? People thought, well, it's because you were in the presence of evil or because it brought back this post-traumatic syndrome or some kind. He said, no, what I saw in Eichmann was a simple man, a man with no extraordinary talents or abilities. I saw in him exactly what I was. I, too, am capable of what Eichmann did. All of us as humans are capable of grotesque evil. We're not different from one another in that regard. And even uh, a, Ger- a Jewish philosopher, Anna Herent, talked about that as the banality of evil where people just get caught up in the circumstances of life and just commit evil without even thinking about it. But it doesn't make it not evil. It's still evil. Evil is a problem, and the the, the solution is what Jesus comes to do here. He comes to fix that problem. In verse 9 and 10, we see this wine explained. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know from where it came, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is a picture of of what uh, Mary and Jesus is. Uh, The uh, the master of the feast in Greek is one word, archetriklinos. The word arche is the ruler. And triklinos, the the triclinium, is the way the room is set up. Tri means three, and they would have three tables. There would be a head table that would stretch across the front, and then tables that would go along the row this way. And the bride party would sit all at the front table, and all the guests would sit along it that way. The tables were only about 18 inches high, and you would lay down and have the feast that way. They didn't have tables and chairs like we have it. And so the architriclinos was a headmaster, the MC as such, of this room for everybody. Now, they run out of wine, and the true Archetriklinos here doesn't know about it, but Mary does, and so she tells Jesus. He fixes it. The way it should have gone is that the Archetriklinos, the master of ceremonies here, the master of the feast, should have known and told the bridegroom. But instead, it's Mary who tells Jesus. And perhaps John is showing us here that the true bridegroom is Jesus, not this unnamed character that got married that day, but Jesus is the one who's told There was a shortage of wine, and he's the one that then supplies the need. Jesus supplies the need that we have. And so we see this as Jesus fulfills this need. Now, verse 11 gives us the meaning of the sign. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the whole point, that they might believe. And that gets back to John 20, verse 30 and 31. John's purpose is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life through his name. It was all about them believing. And his disciples here began incrementally to believe more and more. 
They believed in chapter 1. They believe more now after this miracle. As time goes on, they'll see more about who Jesus was. Now, let me just conclude with this thought. How many of you uh, watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday? Anybody? A few of you. The Kentucky Derby yesterday was uh, historic. It's a two-minute race, two minutes and three seconds. It took two minutes and three seconds for the race to be run. It took 20 minutes to decide who the winner was. And that's because of this. As they ran the horses, uh, horse number seven and horse number 20 were coming around. There was a few horses in between, but number seven, and I can't remember the horse's names, but passed out of his lane, bumping another horse, but finished first. Horse number 20 finished second. The first horse finished, and, and when they interviewed the jockey right afterwards on the horse and the trainer, everybody was celebrating. They were so happy and thrilled. We finished first because that horse had worked so hard and done so well. But by sliding out of his lane, over three lanes, he was disqualified. That's a foul. And so it took 20 minutes for the judges to review this tape and decide that this was a foul. And they had to now disqualify that horse. So number 20 then becomes the new winner. And as they were talking about this, I'm thinking about rules. You know, there's rules to live by and you can't break the rules or you'll be disqualified, right? This horse was disqualified. Now, as this was wrapping up 30 minutes later, one of the commentators made a comment that I thought was very insightful. He said that that horse thought he won and never knew he lost. That horse walked back to the stable still believing he was the winner. And the horse that thought he was a loser walked back to the stable still believing he finished second. Isn't that interesting? Because there's a lot of us who spend a lot of time working hard in life trying to accomplish things to show that we finished first. We did well. And we'll be glorified because of our good works. And we walk back to our stable thinking, I finished well. I finished first. How great am I? While others, as John says, who put themselves in second place, they do finish first. They may not have known it, but they do succeed. And I think for all of us, In our own lives, we know that it's not by our good works, but by Christ's good work that we do finish first. It's by what Christ has done for us. And so it's not on our own failures that we rely, because that's what they are. They don't accomplish anything. It's not in our works, but it's on what Christ has done. And that's what this parable is all about, this story is about, this miracle is about. It's a sign that points to the coming kingdom that Jesus will bring. And he brings it through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. The other signs, as we'll see them in John lay out in greater detail the greatness of who Jesus was. This sign shows us that Jesus really was the Messiah and that he really brings life. Let's stand as we dismiss in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word in this gospel. And may we all be enlightened by the understanding that Jesus is the great Messiah. Or we will deny Jesus and follow our sinful desires, just like the opposition. Are you living a lifestyle that denies